0: You know how I've been bringing books each uh, each week. Here's another one I'll pass around. <clears throat> this is a classic. I believe this was written in 1932. The author is Lorraine Bettner. Yeah, he wrote this in 1932. It's a classic and it's titled The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. It is one of the best of Uh, things written that I've read, so I'll pass this around. I'm sure you could possibly find it still, amazon.com. Tonight, the doctrine of predestination. So before we uh, dive in, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and ask our Lord to bless our time together. Our most dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather tonight. We thank you for this warm, beautiful building that we can gather in to where we are going to indulge now into the Word of God. And Father, we are penetrating the deepest crevices of your mind. We are looking into the mind of God and the only place that we are allowed to look will be in the Holy Scriptures. But as we plumb the depths of your mind over this subject matter, it's deep theology. But it's so important for us to understand and do our best by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit to teach us and to help us to understand what you have done for us, Father, when it comes down to our salvation. Yes, we're saved by grace in Christ alone through faith alone but a whole bunch of steps took place before the foundation of the world where you stepped in and uh, called us out of darkness into your marvelous light by electing us and predestining us and foreknowing us to come to faith. The doctrines of grace they're magnificent they glorify you, Father. So tonight help us to do that very thing. Bring glory and honor and exalt the Father in what you have done once again in this next link in the chain of salvation. Enlighten our hearts. Help us to understand. And then may we apply it by falling that much more in love with you, Father, for what you've done for us. We pray this in the magnificent name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ and God's people said. Amen. Well, in your outline that I handed out to you this evening, I've got Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, for our text to take a peek at here regarding the doctrine of predestination. And look with me at it. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35 says that all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he, but God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Well, friends, we spent quite a bit of time on eternal security, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, and then we moved to the doctrine of foreknowledge, and I believe we spent two or three weeks on that. I don't quite remember. But now we come to the second link, In the chain of salvation, and its foreknowledge's twin brother, predestination. Now, the two are so closely tied together that some see them really as synonymous. But I think they're different. And because of the fact that Scripture itself deals with them individually, we too will follow suit by using Scripture as our pattern. But friends, always keep in mind that all the links in the chain of salvation that we have looked at and will continue to look at, all of the links in the chain of salvation are indispensable to one another. Let me say this, that if you remove one link from the chain, it unravels just like a rope. Remove one link in the chain of salvation unravels like a rope. So in its simplest form, we need to understand this big word that we've all run across for years, predestination. Now, predestination refers to God's choice of individuals for eternal life. In other words predestination is a predetermined appointment to salvation. Let me say that again because it's so critical that we understand this. That our salvation was predestined or predetermined by God for an appointment to salvation to those in whom God exercised that predetermined appointment with. Now, the great Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor, great Bible expositor in England. In the early 1900s, I believe he died around 1955, 58, 59, I'm somewhere in there. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of England's greatest preachers. I want to quote him, and I have that quote for you in your outline. He said this, Predestination is simply a description of the destiny that God has determined and decided upon for the people whom God has foreknown. John MacArthur, pastor teacher of Grace Community Church in California, John said this, from foreknowledge, which looks at the beginning of God's purpose in his act of choosing, God's plan of redemption moves to his predestination, which looks at the end of God's purpose in his act of choosing. I think that's well said. John MacArthur is recognizing That God moves from foreknowledge to predestination. And he does so by his own sovereign purpose and will. So, beloved, from all eternity, before you and I ever existed, God decided to save some members of the human race and to let the rest of the human race perish. God made a choice. He chose some individuals to be saved into everlasting blessedness and others he chose to pass over. To allow them to follow the consequences of their sin into eternal torment. Now our Lord himself said this in Matthew chapter 20 verse 15. Is it not lawful for God to do what he wishes with his own? Is it not lawful for God to do what he wishes with his own? So loved ones. A vexing problem with predestination is that God does not choose to elect everyone. Now, right out of the gate, right out of the gate, the thought of predestination is repugnant to the carnal mind. Many people will not embrace predestination because they find it repugnant to our carnal mind. Now, you all are familiar with Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor, preacher, also from England. Well, on May 4th in 1856, I believe he started preaching in 1855, and I believe he might have been 21 years old. By the way, Pastor Jim, I believe, started preaching at around 21 years of age too. On May 4th, in 1856, preaching at New Park Street Chapel in London, England, Charles Spurgeon said this about predestination. Men will allow God to be everywhere except upon his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion the worlds and to make stars. They will allow him to be in his armory to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, or light the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. When we proclaim an enthroned God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed at and men turn deaf ears to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. He's right. Now, I remember reading you a couple of quotes from uh, A.W. A, a. Pink, Arthur Pink, when we were looking at foreknowledge. Arthur Pink also said that he has never been met with such opposition from people within the church when it comes to foreknowledge and predestination. Bring up the word predestination and people panic. So, friends, when we come to the doctrine of predestination, Thoughts immediately arise which suggest that there is injustice with God. Why? Because the carnal dictates of the mind resist the thought that God does not save everyone. Then somehow they call into question God's justice. God's goodness, God's fairness. But I don't think you want to call into question God on what is just. I don't think we ever want to question God as to his justice. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, Because he understood man's carnal mind. He understood that when he introduced the doctrines of grace in Romans chapter 8 and plowed through it in 9, 10, and 11, and he used three chapters to show the sovereignty of God in the predestination of the nation of Israel and true believers in Christ. And Paul understood how men are going to get stiff-necked and get uptight about those doctrines. Listen to what he said in Romans chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Paul understood how hard it is for the finite minds of men to embrace the doctrine of predestination. But friends if God exercised justly, no one would be saved. Think about that. If God would operate justly towards every single human being born of woman, no one would be saved. We never want to question God's justice when it comes to the doctrines of grace, especially the doctrine of predestination. Now, I want to remind you that your reasoning, my reasoning, all of our reasoning have been tainted by original sin. We've been corrupted by sin, Therefore, our ability to reason has been corrupted. Now, if that's the case, and we all know it's true, if we have been corrupted in our reasoning, then you have a corrupt understanding. Do you follow with me so far? That's what original sin did. The sin that took place in the garden with Adam and Eve and sin has now passed down to every single man. Romans 5.12. That sin corrupted our reasoning and therefore it's corrupted our understanding. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 50 verse 1, And you thought I was altogether like you. I like that. That's kind of putting us in our place. We should never question a holy, righteous God on His justice. We should never call into question our great God's goodness. You see, we can't allow our corrupt reasoning, listen to this, to determine divine truth. We cannot allow our corrupt reasoning to determine divine truth. So once again, what you've seen me do throughout this study so far is we turn to the only source of truth uncorrupted by the fall and that's to the Holy Scriptures, to the Bible. And I'd like to emphasize tonight that our only response to God's revelation is to submit ourselves totally to the inspiration of Scripture. To come to Scripture as if we know nothing and allow God to speak. So I want to begin by reminding you that Scripture claims salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2.9 Now, will you all agree that that is unambiguous? It's pretty clear, isn't it? We really can't get too mixed up on that, can we? Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2.9 Now, Something interesting, the Hebrew makeup of that verse, it's emphatic. The Greek original text is emphatic that the salvation is of the Lord, nobody else. In other words, we could say that salvation is of the Lord period. No ifs, no buts, no nothing. So Psalm 1, rhetorical question. I got a little grin on my face because I'm, I'm setting us all up for where we're going here. Was there not a time when all of us in this sanctuary walked in the counsel of the ungodly? Was there not a time in all of our lives when we all walked in the counsel of the ungodly and stood in the path of sinners and sat in the seat of the scornful? The answer is yes. There was a time. Was there not a time when you said, I will not have this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reign over you? Luke 19, 14. Was there not a time when you would not come to Christ that you might have life? John 5, 40. Now, if you'd be honest with yourself, you'd have to acknowledge there was. There was a time that every one of us did those very things. Now here's the big question. How is it that all of that has now changed? How is it that every single one of us sitting here tonight No longer walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. What took place? What changed? What was it that brought you from the haughty, self-sufficient to the humble saint? from one that was enmity with God to one that is at peace with God. May I suggest unequivocally, salvation is of the Lord. May I suggest that it was God who was able to subdue your will and win your heart? But God does all of this in accordance with your will. Nowhere does God violate your will. God does so without interfering with your moral responsibility. Now when Lori and I pray every night together, I often I often pray this. Father, we love you because you first loved us. 1 John 4.19 Hi, you guys. Welcome home. We love him because he first loved us. You see, none of us in this sanctuary tonight were smarter than somebody else. None of us had a a better upbringing than somebody else. We didn't just all of a sudden trip and wake up and, wow, we're brilliant. We're going to embrace God, and we're going to embrace God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not one of us ever did any of that. We love Him because He first loved us. Furthermore, 1 John 5.20, God has given us, listen, an understanding that we may know Him. Notice who gave us the understanding. God. So again, Matthew twenty fifteen, is it not lawful for God to do what He wishes with His own? The answer, God's will is not subject to man's wishes. God can do as he please, beloved, with his clay. We are his clay. He's the potter. He molded, he shaped us, and we are what we are today because salvation is of the Lord. And that's precisely what God has done on the behalf of all who are saved, as he wills. Now, you know that I like to support everything that I tell you. Grab your Bibles, please, and open up your Bible to John chapter 1. I'm going to start laying this out for you, biblically. That was all introduction. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. And as you're turning there... The Apostle John did not get very far in the gospel to flush out what we've been so far looking at this evening. He didn't get very far in that gospel, chapter 1, and in verse 12, he wants to make it very clear to us how it is that we are in Christ. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many... As received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, watch this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. How does it finish? but of God. There's no escaping it. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believed in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, meaning yourself, nor of the will of man, but of God. Turn over to John, please. Chapter 5, verse 21. John chapter 5, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead... And gives life to them. Even so, the Son gives life to whom he will. Hmm. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Very familiar passage to a lot of us. Turn over to Philippians, please. Philippians chapter 1, please. Verse 29, I have this highlighted, and I, after I highlighted, I said, that's still, it's so important, I had to redline it, underline it. Paul, speaking to the Philippian church, he said this to them, For to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, catch this, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe. You see, faith, trusting, and believing, it's a gift. It's a gift. And Paul says right here, it was granted. He granted us the ability to believe philippians 2:13 for it is god who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure may i say to all of us here tonight somehow some way we all in our sin at one time enemies of God, dead in trespasses and sin, he found good pleasure in redeeming us. Now you ask my wife, I don't know how God could find any pleasure in the sinful man that I am. But he found good pleasure in saving us. And that process of saving us started with foreknowledge and moved to predestination and then calling. All links in the chain of salvation. One more James chapter 1, verse 18. James chapter 1, verse 18. James is talking to the believers in Jerusalem. And James says this in verse 18. Look with me, would you? Of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. God brought us forth. We didn't bring ourselves forth. God brought us forth. God granted us the ability to believe. So now I want to return to that rhetorical question just to stir your minds. Why is it that all are not saved, particularly all who hear the gospel? Let me put it to you another way. I'm going to use this I think often. Two men, college young college men. Two young men in college. They're sitting at a Billy Graham crusade. Billy Graham clearly preaches and proclaims a clear concise gospel. One man Embraces Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior for the remissions of his sin, and the other man did nothing. Why is that? The one who embraced the gospel, was he smarter than the other guy? Better looking? More money? Why is it that all are not saved, particularly all who hear the gospel? Well, friends, the unsaved are lost because they refuse to believe. John 3.18, he who does not believe is condemned already, and yet others are saved because they believe. But why do those who believe do so? Why do they do that? What is it that causes them to put faith in Christ and others to reject him? Is it because the one is more intelligent than the other? Is, is the one less sinful? Has the one committed more sins than the other? Beloved, it is God himself who makes the difference between the elect and the non-elect. It is God himself who makes the difference to the man that believes and the man that doesn't. For of his own it is written, John ten twenty seven. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So now I ask the next rhetorical question, How is this done? Point number one. God's predetermination. Would you turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, one of the greatest passages of Scripture ever penned. And it all begins to talk about what God has done for all of His elect, for you and I. By the way, you and I, we are God's elect. Now, I don't say that to be haughty. That's a humble, humble title for us. We are God's elect. Not something that we should get puffed up about, but something that I hope we'll be humble about when we understand how that works. Romans chapter 8, historical text, verse 28 through 30. And we know, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes, for whom he foreknew, first link in the chain of salvation, foreknowledge, for whom God foreknew, look what he did, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom God predestined, these He also called, whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. That's the chain of salvation. But notice what the key word is that we're looking at. Predestined. Friends, this is a monumental text which really is the undergirding to our salvation. The Apostle Paul clearly lists the five components, the five elements, the five links, so to speak, in the chain of salvation. Look with me again. Foreknowledge, predestination, election, realized in the call, what do I mean by that? He he foreknew and predestined us back in eternity past, before the world began, right? Before He ever created anything, all of us in this room as believers, God knew us. And He foreknew and predestined. He predetermined. He foreordained us to be believers in Him. And then election took place, and that's when he called you in real time. In each one of us, he called us all differently, but he called us. That's election. And then look what he does next. Then he justifies us. Justification, not guilty. And then look at the last one, glorification. That's our... Preservation of the saints. Five links in a chain of salvation. They are all what we call components in the doctrines of grace. But for our purposes tonight, we're interested in this word predestination of God's people. So in Romans chapter 8, verse 20 through 30, notice the unbreakable chain introduced by the word he also. Do you see that with me? Do you see that for whom he foreknew? He also. That's key. God himself not only foreknew or foreordained. I think if you remember, I told you that the word foreknew is a little misleading. It wasn't the best word that they could have used. They could have used the word foreordained or foreordination. And if you recall, I took you over to First Peter chapter one, verse twenty, and showed you where the translators use the word "for Christ to die on the cross. Do you remember that? So God Himself not only foreordained, but it says He also, He also what? Predestined. He predetermined. That is, God predestined his sovereign plan of salvation. He implemented it, he made it real. It's all God. First, says Paul, that the elect are foreknown by God, then predestined to what? To salvation. He had a purpose. And do you know that God's purposes always will go forth? Nobody's going to thwart God's purposes. Thus, predestination is effectively God carrying out his sovereign plan and will in the case of those who were foreordained to salvation. Isn't that beautiful? Let me repeat that. Predestination is effectively God carrying out his sovereign plan and his sovereign will in the case of those who are foreordained to salvation. You and I. Now look at verse 29. For whom God foreordained, he also predetermined or predestined. Paul purposely said he also, he not only foreordained you, then he carried it out and predestined you. Remember the word predestined? I don't know if you remember this when we were looking at foreknowledge and we just kind of talked a little bit about predestination. I said to you, it comes from the Greek word parisio, which literally means to predetermine, to determine beforehand, to mark out beforehand, to foreordained. And I said to you, the word is synonymous with determined in Scripture. I also said these interchangeable words are always used in a verb form, critical, a verb form. Why a verb form? Because that's denoting the action of someone else. It's purposely set in the verb form. Well, the action by someone else is who? God. The action by another is God. God predetermining beforehand the salvation of the believer. Now, allow me to illustrate this further from Scripture. Turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 21. I'm going to illustrate this a little further for you. I can't stand it. i got to start in verse 14. It's just so rich, just to jump in the middle of the context. Romans chapter 9, we're going to look at verse 14. What we want to key in on, though, is 21 through 24, but I want to pick it up in verse 14. Paul is arguing, in a sense, with with the people who are going to read this epistle, this letter, and they're going to object. And their objection is going to be calling into question again, the justice of God, the fairness of God, the goodness of God. Because all of us, I think, have to be honest, it's hard to recognize that God predestines some to salvation and not others. So Paul is going to lay this out quite eloquently. Let's follow with him. Look what he says. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now our English text says certainly not. I have the New King James. The Greek language is much more powerful. Really what Paul was saying was absolutely not. May it never be. No, no, no. He was stressing. No. There's no uncertainty with unrighteousness with God. Certainly not. Now look what he says. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now look what he says next. So then, it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. In other words, it's not of the man who wills it to happen, and it isn't of the man who runs to make it happen. Look what he says. Then who's it of? But of God. Of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. Case in point, Pharaoh. You will see to me then, why does God still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Now, here's where we need to pay close attention. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power of the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the another for dishonor? Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath? Look what it says, prepared for destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which, look what he says, he prepared when? Beforehand. Which God had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called. Friends, Paul is passionate defending the sovereignty of God to predestine, to predetermine beforehand the salvation of the believer. And there is no unrighteousness whatsoever in God if he were to pass by and leave someone alone. I want to bring to your attention to the phrase prepared beforehand in verse 23. Look at Romans 9, look at verse 23. Prepared beforehand is the Greek word protomaze, which literally means to make ready. This word prepared is in the aorist active voice of the verb tense also denoting the action of God. Thus, this phrase prepared beforehand carries the same idea as predestined in Romans 8, 29-30. And beloved, dear friends, in both cases, It's the action of God. The only way to deny this absolute guaranteed truth is if we want to manipulate scripture. I don't remember who the man was. If you torture the text long enough, It'll say anything. But we're not going to torture the text. We're going to exegete the text. We're going to extract the meaning from the text. And you can't escape it. In both cases, Romans 8, 29-30, and Romans 9, 21-24. through 24, In both cases, the action is of God. The text is clear. God predestined and prepared beforehand those whom he has elected to salvation. So now I ask the question, when did God do all of this? That is predestine and prepare beforehand those for salvation. When did he do all of this? Anybody? Anybody? Loud and clear, Diane. Before the foundation foundation of the earth. In other words, when did God plan this course of action to make ready the elect? Diane nailed it. Before the foundation of the world. Now, friends, it's important to emphasize that the plan of salvation did not come into the mind of God after the fall of Adam and Eve. That is critical that you understand that. God's plan of salvation did not take effect after Adam and Eve fell in the garden. It took place before the foundation of the world. It was in God's mind even before the creation of the entire universe. That's how far back I'm going to take it. What a God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before the foundation of the world, it was in God's mind, even before the creation of the entire universe. Would you turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Matthew, chapter 25, verse 34? Matthew, chapter 25, verse 34. Pay close attention to the language. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Anybody there? Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Mm. A text every one of us knows so well. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, please. Again, another text that is just so blessed to me. I want to pick it up in verse 3. The great Apostle Paul, who understands so clearly his salvation by Christ Jesus, his Lord, he said this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And now he's going to begin to list them just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined or predetermined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of God's will and to the praise of the glory of God's grace by which God made us accepted in the beloved. I didn't intend to keep going, but I can't stop. Will you keep joining me? You don't mind? In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. And the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of His will. According to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself. Drop down to verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predetermined or predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the holy spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purpose purchase, possession to the praise of his glory Look at verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? Now, notice what he says, Paul, according to the working of his mighty power. I I don't know if I can take you to a richer text that clearly, clearly outlines who did what to whom. God did all of that through Christ Jesus the Lord on our behalf, the elect. And Paul kept using the word us, us, us. It's the elect. It isn't the whole world. This isn't universal. This is a select few. Turn over to Revelation 13, 8. Y'all there, Revelation 13, 8, a backhanded use. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the Lamb, in the excuse me, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You know, I, I, I can't stand it. Turn, turn back, would you please, real quick. First Peter chapter 1. This little thing keeps going off in my head to show you this. First Peter chapter 1. I'm just going to pick it up in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Jump up to verse 20. That's what God's done for all of us. Look what he did with his son, Jesus Christ. He indeed, Jesus, was indeed for, ordained before what? The foundation of the world. Do you remember when we were studying this and I said to you, can you imagine anybody questioning God? and suggesting to God that he cannot keep us and and make us be preserved. And then I said to you, now, can you imagine that God did all of what he did before the foundation of the world? Is he not going to redeem us? The answer is yes. Then I also said to you, can you imagine somebody thinking that God is going to look down the halls of time oh, I see what Brian Wood's going to do and I'm going to save him. Can you imagine God looking down the halls of time and saying, oh, okay, that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to get on a cross and he's going to die. He did all of that for Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. The scripture tells us that. Acts tells us the same thing, that he did all of that before the foundation of the world. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. Well, that's the same thing he did for us. He didn't wait to see that Adam and Eve fell in the garden and then he created a plan. And in that plan, his son was going to die. And he had to wait to see what was going to take place before he knew what he was going to do. you got to be kidding me. What an insult to our great and awesome God. Lori and I were talking about the doctrines of grace and I haven't taught it for... I don't know, somewhere around 2009, I think, 8. Excuse me. I think I said to you, I've got a friend of mine that believes that those who believe that you can lose your salvation, he believes that's heresy. It's just heretical. It's that offensive to him to think that our great and awesome God, who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, isn't going to see us home. And I was telling Lori, the more I study this, the more I keep preparing over and over again, and and the Holy Spirit moving in my heart to prepare some some new stuff. I'm troubled these days about anybody that believes you can lose your salvation, because that's really an insult to my great and awesome God. The God that Paul says, is there any unrighteousness in God? in whom there is no darkness at all. Our great God predestined us before the foundation of the world. He set all of that up before anything was ever created. We were in His mind. Loved ones, God initiated God purposed, God willed our salvation. And he did all that before the foundation of the world, before the world was ever called into existence, before Genesis 1.1. Thus, before the foundation of the world, God predestined, God prepared beforehand all true believers. I think I'm going to, well, I could stop. I'll let you decide. I could stop, and we could pick it up again next week. I've got about probably 40 minutes. Call it. I'm good either way. Call it quits? Let's call it quits. Before I close this in prayer, I would like to ask Dave. Dave, did you find it? Didn't find it. didn't find it, okay. I'll close this in prayer. And before I do, does it, it, have I made it clear so far to this point what God has done on our behalf? Okay, if I haven't, let me know at the end tonight. Let me know where maybe I have fallen short. Because I I want all of us to leave this study of the doctrines of grace. And we may not completely understand it all because God's ways are higher than our ways. His ways are not our ways. How unsearchable are the ways of God? What 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 I'm hoping is you leave here convinced what God has done fully, solely, and wholly of him in regards to your salvation. What I'm hoping is we all leave here that much more in love with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How great a God we have that he took sinners and saved us by his grace. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. I've also heard it said, God's redemption at Christ's expense. They're both good. God's grace. Let's close. Father, I'm humbled over and over again when I read the Scripture and I comprehend what you have done on earth the behalf of the believer. I don't know any other way except to love you because you first loved us. I don't know how anybody can't love you when you showered them with your grace upon grace upon grace. To think that before you ever created anything, before you breathed creation into life, We were a picture in your mind, in your heart. You knew us by name. And then because you had such an affectionate love for us, you foreordained, you predetermined, predestined, elected us, and then in real time called us. And again, as Peter says, out of darkness and your marvelous light, to be your chosen vessels, vessels of honor. Father, I am never cease to be amazed at your great love. Thank you so very much, Father God, for first loving us that we could love you. Help us all as we leave here tonight to let these truths found in Scripture mull mull around in our minds and help us to embrace them. Don't call into question their existence. They're true. Scripture outlined that clearly tonight. Help us to embrace it. And love you that much more. Help us to be more dedicated, more committed to you and to your son. And we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit, which keeps us for eternity. We love you, Father. And we pray these things in the matchless name of your most precious and dearest son. He's our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said,